When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, good morning. It's an amazing spring day. We are, uh, Sam just said, we are uh, beginning a new sermon series uh, that will take us through the summer. Uh, the plan is uh, to eventually. The plan. The plan is eventually to return to the Beatitudes. Um, but I thought it important with all the traveling this summer, uh, there'll be various preachers that will be with us this summer. I thought it important to have a series um, that would allow both some flexibility, uh, but also would have a common theme. And so I think in the last couple of summers, you've you've had uh, uh, sermons looking at various psalms. So I thought we'd do it, go a little different direction this summer. And so I've entitled the sermon series Old Testament Prophet Radio. Uh, listening, I would add this part, listening in our day. Um, it's likely that the prophetical books, uh, and especially the minor prophetical books, are the least widely known and recognized books of the Bible in the Christian church today. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is that they're not written so easily to be broken up into bite-sized pieces for the foundation of weekly sermons. Another reason, perhaps, is that they seem a bit more foreign to us, perhaps, at first glance, than other Old Testament passages and books. But I would make a case this morning with just a little understanding of context that the prophets are actually just as relevant to us today, especially perhaps to us today, than any other book of the Old Testament. See, the prophets, the writers, and preachers of the prophetical books of the Old Testament 
were God's mouthpiece to his people, to his Older Testament people. And these were the sermons that were preached to God's people. And they dealt with circumstances and concerns that I would say are very much recognizable to us today. Prophets dealt with things such as idol worship and idolatry. (laughs) Now, you and I may not actually forge physical idols and physically bow down to them. But I would say that the same inclination to attribute honor and to worship and to crave something so vehemently other than our creator and pursue in ways that end up dehumanizing us, that inclination is still very much alive within our hearts today. And secondly, the prophets also deal with issues of social injustice and often call out how the poor and the disenfranchised are being ignored and not honored as full image bearers of Yahweh. Something very much on the radar of not only followers of Jesus today, but the rest of society as well. And so this morning we begin looking at a passage from the prophet Isaiah. Excuse me, Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel in the 8th century BCE, which means he was preaching and communicating to a people of God who were on the verge of exile with the Assyrians. We'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But as we come to this passage, let us pray that God would be with us even as we engage with these words written literally thousands of years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you might meet us here in this place with these words that were first offered to your people thousands of years ago. Father, help us to have the humility and the courage to be open to hearing how you might still be using these words even today to speak into our lives. However we find ourselves, where we come in here with great faith, indifference, or perhaps even anger or depression, however we find ourselves situated with you this morning, would you meet with us using these words, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let me ask you a question as we get started. When you think of God as your father, how does that sit with you? What kind of feelings come to mind when you consider how the Bible speaks of God being your father. Each week, we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we start our Father. We sing the Gloria Patre, praise to our Father. Often our benedictions are in the name of our triune God, starting with our Father. How do you hear that? That God is your father. Listen how the late theologian J.I. Packer describes the thought of God being our father. This is what he says. It's in your bulletin at the beginning. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. That's a bold statement. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that our understanding and perception of God as our Father is largely, at least initially, tied to our own personal experience with our earthly Father. And so if our earthly father was kind-hearted, it's not difficult to understand God as kind-hearted. But if our earthly father was harsh or shaming or indifferent or even abusive, that certainly can't help but make our appreciation of who God is as our heavenly father all the more complicated and difficult. Now let me pause just a moment and say that yes, the Bible also speaks of God and his attributes in ways that are much more akin to a mother. (laughs) And they're beautiful passages and images. Jesus himself, for example, speaks as if he were like a mother hen longing to gather the brood together in order that she might nurture and protect them. And so the fact that Jesus himself refers to God as father is not a snub against womanhood or motherhood. But nevertheless, when Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray, he invites us and welcomes us to pray to his and our father. And without a thoroughly biblically grounded understanding of God's fatherhood, For many to pray to God as our Father can be complicated at best and repugnant at worst. And so the degree that Packer is on to something here, it's crucial that we accurately understand who God is as our Father. In this passage in Hosea, we hear the prophet describing God as our father. And here we are actually faced with what I believe to be the most vulnerable depiction of Yahweh in his fatherhood in not only the Old Testament, but actually in all of the Bible itself. It's a depiction that completely resonates with the full range of emotions and feelings I have had as father to my three sons. In fact, we see a side of God here, I would make the case, that if we're not actually in the Bible, (laughs) 
we might wonder if it was even heretical to even imagine and to speak of God like this in his fatherhood. One theologian, Derek Kidner, puts it like this. This chapter in Hosea is one of the boldest in the whole Bible in exposing us to the mind and the heart of God in human terms. Even when we speak of God as Father, we may hesitate in case we read too much into the Word. But our chief danger actually is in reading too little from it. From it. Let's take a look. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, it's right there at the top, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The very first way in which we see God reveal himself to his people in the Older Testament was as their father. In Exodus 4, God meets with Moses at the burning bush, and he tells him to go and deliver his people from slavery, from the hands of the superpower of the ancient Near Eastern world, Egypt. And he says, you shall say this to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go. God goes into the orphanage of Egypt, as it were, and rescues and redeems an orphan of a people, Israel, from a lifetime of slavery and destitution, but then does more than that. He actually adopts Israel as his very own son into the very family of the heavenly king. Not unlike how God starts with us, with you, with me, when he meets us as infants. And enslaved infants at that, if we were truly honest with ourselves. He finds us. God comes to us, finds us enslaved to our own idolatries, enslaved to our own fears, enslaved to our own stubbornness, our own selfish desires, enslaved to all of the ways that cause ourselves to be more and more dehumanized and the ways that hurt others in the process. And his goal is to free us, to redeem us, and to restore the very image in us and therefore make us more human. In verses 3 and 4, we get even more beautiful imagery. There Hosea says, speaking for God, it was I, God, Yahweh. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Now, there's a rookie mistake that all parents make as they're raising their children. And the Satojis may experience this in not too long of a time from now as well. Your first child comes along. You have in your mind that this child is potentially the smartest and brightest human being that has ever walked the face of this earth, lived on this face of this earth. And I'm going to prove and demonstrate that by having my child walk quicker and sooner than any other child has ever walked before in human civilization. And you do everything you can. Anytime you see the child trying to get up, you're encouraged, get up, yes, you're trying to encourage them to walk. 
by the time your third child comes along, you're doing everything you can to keep them from walking. <laughs> it's a rookie mistake that every parent makes their first child. Now, whether you're here and you're a parent or not, we all, I think, recognize that scene of a mother or a father coaxing their little child into his or her first couple of steps. And invariably, the child will fall, and then the parent will gently and compassionately pick her up, pull her into her own arms with a gentle hug so that the child is now cheek to cheek in a comforting embrace and a secure and safe space, and then the child is encouraged to try again. How do you see God your father when you stumble, when you fall, when you've just fallen down? Do you hear a voice of shame? Do you see a scolding finger waved back and forth in front of you? Or do you see God, your father, reaching down, picking you up, and pulling you to his very cheek in a gentle, restoring embrace? How do you see God, your father, there? This is how the Bible describes God's response. But, but, <laughs> all toddlers eventually grow up. <laughs> all toddlers eventually, we all eventually become meanagers. We just do. Look at verse 2. The more I called them, the more they went from me. That sounds like a teenager to me. Israel grows up. Just like all of us, when we were teenagers, begins to think he's no longer, he no longer needs his parents' guidance because their parents are just old and out of touch. And so Israel shuns the nurturing and gentle heart of God. And that's when we see God expressing his admonishing heart. Verses 5 to 7. They shall return to the land, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their city, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. This is the absurdity of Israel's waywardness, and frankly, our waywardness. Israel's response over and over to God's kindness and his concern was to spurn it, to reject it, and even repudiate his faithfulness. And it can be the absurdity and insanity of our own actions and thoughts as well. But it's rarely from a lack of knowledge about God's goodness. Rather, it's in spite of it. Because God proves himself as good and faithful and trustworthy to us again and again. But out of our own insanity, we take matters into our own hands and we go back to those ways that demonstrate that we think we know best what makes us tick and what will bring us joy and fulfillment. 
And so in order to wake Israel out of his stupor, God is willing to allow Israel to experience the result of taking matters into his own hands and allow them to get exactly what they're asking for. Instead of trusting in Yahweh, as he has taken care of them in defense of their enemies before, Israel makes a truce with Assyria to become a vassal nation, to pay tribute to them in return for their protection. And God is basically saying, okay, if Assyria is where your hope and faith is, go all in. You can have the Assyrian kingdom to be your ruler. And so they put their trust in Assyria, and they will get the full reign of Assyria, but it won't be everything Israel had hoped and dreamed of in the end. And sometimes God finds it necessary in his infinite wisdom to allow us to experience the consequences of our own foolish ways and our own divided hearts so that we come to the end of ourselves and return to him. But even then, in those moments, there is a side of God that we must not lose sight of. You see, Hosea reveals an aspect of God's heart, especially here, <laughs> that would definitely seem heretical to imagine were it not clearly communicated to us in God's word. We see God spell out very clearly this indictment against Israel. It's not pretty. The evidence is overwhelming. God is a holy God, and he will not allow the waywardness of his son to go undealt with. And yet... God is torn. Verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart, this is God speaking, recoils within me. My compassion begins to grow warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. I'm the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Here we see the internal dialogue of a conflicted, brokenhearted father. We see God with a divided, tormented, even vacillating posture towards Israel. What am I going to do with you? Even though God uses admonishing measures to discipline his children from time to time to make them more like himself, he never takes delight in admonishing his children with severe consequences. How often do parents wonder within themselves how much punishment at a particular moment is needed in a given circumstance? <laughs> with Bud, my firstborn, I am absolutely certain I erred on over-punishing. <laughs> By the time my third son came along west, I'm sure I, under, I was way too easy on him. And I'm guessing they probably would both admit that. <laughs> but that's how it goes. 
Every parent experiences the turmoil of how to handle their children sometimes when they really screw things up. But God says, I'm not like mere mortal parents. (laughs) He is the ideal that all earthly fathers and mothers strive to imitate but will often fall so short from. And so after calling and getting no response, God now will take greater measures to get his son's attention. But not out of wrath, but out of a father's immeasurable concern for the safety and welfare of his child. Again, God never, unlike us, (laughs) earthly parents, God never admonishes out of wrath or capriciousness. Rather, his goal is always rescue and redemption. Always. And so we see it in verse 10. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. God says he will use the intense, (laughs) fearful volume of a lion's roar to finally get his people's attention. It might sound scary. Who wouldn't be afraid of a lion's roar? But God's ultimate goal is one of care. Nothing else is working. So I will now have to roar. I know of no better illustration of this than one I've already used before, of the time when one of my youngest sons, as I'm walking down the sidewalk, heading towards Queen Boulevard, the busiest street in all of the Queensboro, and he takes off running, and he's running towards the intersection. I have no idea what it, what's in his mind, and I'm trying to get him to stop. I can't catch up to him. I only have one shot to sparing him from his own certain doom. And that's I cry out, and I'm yelling at him, Bud, stop. Bud, stop. Bud, stork, I am telling you, stop now. Now, if you weren't aware of the context... If you were simply upstairs in, in a, on, a, on the fourth floor in an apartment in Sunnyside and your window was open and you heard a, heard a father screaming at his son like that, you would call Child Protective Services. But what I was doing was something Child Protective Services could not do in that moment. I was seeking to save my son from his own destruction. In the end, God, his father, will go to great lengths, as any earthly father would, to save his child. Greater lengths, actually. Infinitely greater lengths. And so if we are to have a true and accurate understanding of who God is as our father, we must acknowledge that admonishment from time to time is very much part of his repertoire. But at the very same time, he does not admonish out of anger, but ultimately out of his grace. And we must see and appreciate his heart behind the ways he disciplines us when necessary. And if we don't like to hear the passages where the Bible speaks of God admonishing us as his children, I don't like to hear myself. 
It's likely that we're either just so arrogant to think that we actually have it all together, we don't need any more admonishment. <laughs> or more likely, it's just possible that it's because we just don't have good earthly examples of this done well. And so we project onto God what his admonishment must look like because the ways that we have been shamed, dismissed, used, and even abused by our earthly authority figures, parental or otherwise. And if that is the case this morning, may Hosea help redeem our image of God as our Father. Perhaps this vulnerable side of God's being our Father is nowhere nowhere more beautifully depicted and summed up than in Galatians 4. There we read this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son so that we might receive adoption as his children. And now because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir to the kingdom through God. Last week, we, we lost a, a, a great pastor, preacher in our denomination and with influence, obviously, much greater than just our denomination. Losing Tim Keller. One of my favorite quotes by Tim Keller. He says that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child, is a son, <laughs> is a daughter. That's who you are as a child of God. No matter what you have done, no matter how faithless your walk has looked, no matter how cold your heart has grown towards God, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, the truest thing about you right now is that you are God's beloved son or daughter, and his greatest longing is to see you fully renewed, fully restored in all of your humanity after his image. He loves you that much. Close with this quote by G. Campbell Morgan. On this passage, he says, in communion, with this passage in mind, in communion with God, Hosea had learned facts about the divine nature which seemed to be conflicting. But at last, he, meaning Jesus, came, who is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Through him, through Jesus, the glory of holiness is maintained, for his redemption of the human soul is not a pity that agrees to ignore sin, but a power that cancels it and sets it free from its dominion. Through Jesus, the loved one is regained, restored, renewed, and all the lights that flash and gleam upon the prophetic page, astonishing our souls, come into focus unity in Jesus Christ. And in him, God says of you and says of me, 
How can I give you up? I will not. I will not. I will not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your word sometimes. <clears throat> We're amazed that you would reveal this side of your character and who you are as our Father, to be this vulnerable with us, to show a side of you that is torn in a way. Because your love is so great for us, your compassion is so overwhelming that you will go to great lengths, infinite lengths, in fact, sending your own son that we might become your sons and daughters. Help us to believe that this is a true picture of you as our father in the way that you care for us, in the way that you love us, even in the way that you sometimes admonish us. Help us to believe this is your heart and this is your posture towards us as your children. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.